Hello and welcome to Timeless Files, a fan podcast for the TV show Timeless. I am your host, Chris Butler. Uh, Apologies, this episode of Timeless Files is a few days late. My laptop, on which I have recorded all the episodes of Timeless Files so far, died a sudden horrible death this week. So I've had to make other arrangements to record this episode, and a new laptop is on order. Hopefully you shouldn't hear anything different as you're listening. News came this week that the last two episodes of season two will both be shown on NBC in the States on May the 13th, starting at 9pm. I think this is possibly a good sign that NBC are willing to devote two hours of prime time to Timeless that night. The decision on whether Timeless is going to be renewed for season three is likely to be announced around that time, give or take a week or two. I think the quality of season two has been really high. It's just been fantastic so far. And needless to say, I really hope it does come back for another season. And many more. May the 13th just happens to be the date a year ago when Timeless was finally renewed for season two. Can that be a coincidence? Surely not. Right then, I think we should get on with this week's podcast. This time I'm talking about The Amazing, Season 2, Episode 3, Hollywoodland. The episode starts with Rittenhouse placing a sleeper agent in Hollywoodland, as the original sign said. This would have been 1926, we learn later. It had to be after 23, because that's when the sign first went up. There's a sweeping Spielberg-esque quality to the soundtrack as the camera swoops in and through the Hollywoodland sign. Robert Duncan on top form again with the music. This agent is just a young lad, really. Lucas Calhoun. But he's old enough to fend for himself, I guess. His father tells him to stick to the plan and make him proud. Then his father steps back into the mothership, leaving Lucas there. Then we see him again 15 years later. We're on a Hollywood film set. The caption tells us it's January 2nd, 1941. Lucas is now a producer at RKO. He's risen to a level where he can shut down a film production if he chooses, which is what he does here. He says that television is the future. He turns around and his father has returned, looking not a day older. Father tells son that Rittenhouse has found Nicholas Keynes, plucked him out of World War I. He says Keynes has plans for all of them, he's mapped it all out, and it's time for Lucas to play his part. Next we cut to the bunker, where Gia climbs out of the lifeboat and down the steps. Just as she gets to the bottom, she has another seizure slash vision, in which she sees Rufus in period costume. He shoots someone with a rifle. We'll learn more about this in the next episode. But for now, Agent Christopher sees what's happening to Gia and rushes to help her. She's stunned when she discovers this has been going on for months and no one thought to tell her. Rufus and Mason say that Gia made them promise not to say anything. Gia says she didn't want Christopher to bench her. 
She says there's no point seeing a doctor unless Denise knows someone who specialises in time travel related injuries. Mason says he doesn't think it's anything to worry about. Rufus doesn't agree that seizures and hallucinations are nothing to worry about. Gia starts to say she doesn't think they are hallucinations, but she's not sure what they are. She gets angry with them and says she needs to get back to work. And then they get the alarm that the mothership has jumped to January 2nd, 1941, Los Angeles. Wyatt and Lucy arrive. Lucy says Europe was at war in 1941. Beyond that, she doesn't know what Rittenhouse might want there and then. So they decide to talk to Garcia Flynn again. It turns out that Flynn is in the prison hospital after being stabbed by another inmate. Flynn blames Rittenhouse, but they can't question the man because Flynn killed him. They ask him about January 2nd, 1941, Los Angeles. He asks if they have any ability to do this on their own. He says he'll help them if they get him out of there. Agent Christopher says no. Lucy gives Christopher a look that says, you've got to give him something. She says she can get him a more secure situation and limited internet access. He says he doesn't want a damn Netflix account. He needs to get out of there. Rittenhouse will keep sending people until they succeed in killing him. Christopher says she doesn't have the authority to get him out. But she seems to be leaning towards trying to help him. Then Lucy says she can get him out. He'll have to trust that she can do it. She says as much as he needs them to get him out, they need him more. That appears to be good enough for Flynn. He asks for a pen. He says he needs to draw something for them. The lifeboat lands in 1941. Lovely special effects shot for this. We skip forward to Rufus complaining that they're having to steal clothes everywhere they go now. Wyatt is complaining that all Flynn gave them was a Pictionary clue. Lucy says he gave her what he had, a drawing he took from a Rittenhouse agent in 1941. And although it's a very basic doodle in Flynn's version, they soon realise it's actually the Paramount Pictures logo, with the mountain and the circle of stars around it. So they sneak onto the lot. This lot was shared by Paramount and RKO, which becomes important as the story progresses. The colours are glorious. I kind of wish every episode of Timeless could be set in Hollywoodland. The Time team are discussing how on earth they're going to figure out what Rittenhouse is doing here. When a security man spots them and questions them, Rufus says, do you know who I am? And then he claims to be Langston Hughes, the writer and activist. He says he won an Oscar for Way Down South. Lucy says he didn't. So Rufus says that he should have, he was robbed. He says he's here to see the president of the studio, which Lucy knows was Barney Balaban at the time. They're escorted to his office where the secretary says they don't have an appointment. Rufus is still trying to improvise a plausible cover story. He says that he's writing a comedy musical called The Ways of White Folks. He points at Wyatt and Lucy and says, These are the white folks. They're the next bogey and Bacall. However, this is before Bacall made a film, so Lucy says, 
Fairbanks and Pickford. As luck would have it, Barney Balaban walks in and he agrees to see them. Lucy's not sure if Rufus can pull off pretending to be Hughes, but he says who knows what writers look like. Which I guess is mostly true, even now. We rejoin them with Barney saying that Hamilton the musical will never work. So Rufus has obviously been pitching that idea to him. Wyatt says, how about a thriller with a mysterious cabal called Rittenhouse who bend history in their favour? He's hoping to get a reaction from Balaban by mentioning Rittenhouse, but he doesn't seem to have heard of it, and he thinks secret cabal conspiracy stories have been overdone. He might have a point there. Balaban says he wants something new and different, but the same. Something that sells, but also wins awards. He certainly knows Hollywood, this man. The credits are on screen at this point. This episode is written by Matt Whitney. He previously wrote episode 8 of season 1 of Timeless, The Wonderful Space Race, and he also co-wrote episode 15, Public Enemy Number 1, with Anselm Richardson. This episode is directed by John F. Showalter. He previously directed episodes 10 and 12 of Timeless Season 1. That's the capture of Benedict Arnold and the murder of Jesse James. Into the room comes Hedy Lamarr, a famous actress if ever there was one. Lucy compliments her for looking so glamorous. Hedy says any girl can look glamorous. All you have to do is stand still and look stupid. Lucy apologises and says she knows Hedy is so much more than that. Barney mentions he'll see Hedy at the Beverly house that night. Then he gets a phone call telling him that RKO 281 has been stolen. He brings the meeting to an abrupt halt and sends Lucy, Rufus and Wyatt on their way. Outside, Lucy explains to the others that RKO 281 was the code name for the film Citizen Kane. But why would Rittenhouse want to steal Citizen Kane? Lucy says one person who wanted to kill the film was William Randolph Hearst. Because it was based on him and the actress Marion Davies. Hearst owned dozens of newspapers with over 20 million readers. She knows that Beverly House, which Hedy and Balaban mentioned, is Hearst's Beverly Hills mansion. They plan to go to the party there, hoping to learn more. So they sneak into a costume warehouse on the lot and steal some evening wear. While they're doing that, Lucy explains some of Hedy Lamar's scientific ideas including basically inventing Wi-Fi, although she never made any money from it. Lucas Calhoun and his father have the Citizen Kane reel tapes in the boot of their car. His father says he's done everything they asked of him. When this is done, they can go home together. Lucas says he has a good life here. Maybe his father could stay with him instead. But his father says they have more work to do. So, as in the previous episode, the Rittenhouse sleeper agent is hesitant to give up the life that they've been enjoying in the past. It'll be interesting to see if other sleeper agents have the same doubts. 
Back in the present day, Agent Christopher tells Gia a doctor is coming to see her. He knows about the seizures, but not the time travel. Gia still insists she doesn't want to see a doctor. Mason says surely she can make her own decisions on this. But Christopher says she's not asking for his opinion. Gia explains that her father saw a doctor because of back pain and he died within two months. If she's ill, she would rather not know. But Christopher reassures her that they will deal with whatever the doctor says. She promises Gia will be okay. At last Gia nods her head and it looks like she will agree to the exam. Christopher gives Mason a very pointed look, not impressed with him at all. They arrive at the party that evening. Rufus and Wyatt are wearing black tie suits. The dress that Lucy wears is based on one worn by Catherine Hepburn in the Philadelphia story. Possibly it's supposed to be that actual dress, although that was an MGM film. Hedy Lamar arrives moments after they do. She takes Rufus by the arm and says she's dying to speak to him about his poetry, which means he has to carry on pretending to be Langston Hughes, which was a stretch for him in the first place. And remember, Hedy is very intelligent. She says she'd like to hear something from his latest book of poems. He tries to decline, but she insists. And who could refuse Hedy Lamar? But the best he can come up with is to recite the lyrics of the theme song from The Prince of Bel-Air. Her verdict is that it was truly awful, and he is not Langston Hughes. Wyatt and Lucy have wandered into the party, and they've spotted Hurst. Rufus and Hedy join them, and Rufus reveals that Hedy knows what they're doing here. They're here to recover the stolen Citizen Kane film, and they believe Hurst has stolen it. They claim Orson Welles himself has sent them. They're easily able to convince her that they've seen the film, because unlike most people at this time, they have seen it. Which Hedy takes as proof that they must know Welles. They ask Hedy if she can introduce them to Hurst. They ask who he's talking to, and Hedy says it's Lucas Calhoun. She says he's a producer at RKO, and he's working on a film that sounds brilliant. It's about dinosaurs, called Jurassic Park. So now they know for sure that Calhoun is the Rittenhouse agent. Hurst and Calhoun head upstairs, away from the party, to talk privately. Wyatt and Lucy start to follow them, but then Barney Balaban spots them and decides they should entertain everyone with a song. Having introduced themselves as actors in musicals, they can't really refuse. Barney says they have the best piano player in town, his name's Buster, which really makes me laugh because when Lucy says hit it Buster during the song, that's actually his name. Anyway, Wyatt and Lucy are heading towards the piano. Wyatt is whispering to her that it will definitely blow their cover if he tries to sing, but Lucy can do it. She says she hasn't sung since the car accident, which is a reference back to episode 4 in season 1, when she talked about wanting to drop out of college to join a band. But then she had a car accident and nearly drowned. I think I'm entitled to feel slightly smug at this point because I predicted that Abigail would sing at some point on the show, 
in character as Lucy. And this is that moment. So she has to go up to the piano on her own while Wyatt watches from the crowd. She sings, You Made Me Love You, brilliantly. I mean, absolutely brilliant. I can't really do justice to it by trying to describe it, but she gives it some razzmatazz in the middle and ends up looking directly at Wyatt as she sings the last line, You Know You Made Me Love You. And he knows it's not just a line in a song. I've been slightly obsessed with this song because of this scene. I don't think I knew it before, although it's possible I'd heard it somewhere. There is a bit of footage online of Abigail Spencer singing this in a recording studio, but she said on Twitter that in the end it was the live version recorded while they were filming that they used. Rufus and Hedy make their way up to the room adjacent to the one Hurst and Calhoun are in. Between them they come up with a way to hear what's being said in the room, utilising a pin, some tape and a glass. Rufus says Hedy would be the perfect girlfriend if he didn't already have one. He's not incapable of a bit of flirting once in a while. Calhoun offers Hurst the Citizen Kane film reels in exchange for a weekly column in his newspapers. And Hurst is willing to agree if it means that he can stop the film being released. Afterwards, Rufus meets up with Wyatt and Lucy again. Lucy says Hurst's newspapers were hugely influential. If Rittenhouse can write their own propaganda into the newspapers, then they can rewrite history as it happens. Rufus tells them the exchange is to happen at 10am in the morning on stage 14. A car pulls up and Hedy asks them where they're staying. Of course, they haven't had any chance to arrange any accommodation, so Lucy says they're between hotels. You can see in this scene that it was very windy the night they were filming this. I'll talk more about that when we get to the pool scene, which is coming right up. But before that, we cut back to Agent Christopher, who is asking Mason where Gia is. He says she's still with the Doctor, getting the bad news. She can't understand why he's being so negative. He says if she'd asked him, he would have told her not to bring in the Doctor. He warned them the lifeboat can only take a maximum of three people. He says in early trials of the lifeboat, they had two others who developed similar symptoms. One of them is being treated for severe schizophrenia, and the other died of a brain aneurysm. Denise asks him if Rufus knows this. Mason says no, he doesn't. He says no good can come from Gia knowing it. There's nothing anyone can do. I'm really interested in this schizophrenic pilot. Is he, like Gia, actually seeing alternate timelines? If his symptoms are more extreme than hers, it could be that he's struggling to make sense of things from one moment to the next. I hope we get to meet this pilot one day. Hedy has invited the time team to stay the night at her place, since they have nowhere else to go. Any friend of Orson's is a friend of hers. Hedy has recognised that Rufus understands science, which is an understatement, of course. She has a room full of inventions and Rufus is required to go look at them. 
To Wyatt and Lucy, she says, You two lovebirds make yourself at home. Wyatt repeats that, lovebirds, like he can't quite work out how he got to this point with Lucy. But he knows it is how they're feeling now. They walk out to the pool, chatting about Hedy and her inventing partner, George Antile. Lucy says George has a huge crush on Hedy, but he was married when they met. Wyatt says, bad timing. And obviously, to some extent, he's talking about the situation with him and Lucy. Wyatt says some men are intimidated by a beautiful, intelligent woman. Lucy says Hedy just wants to be respected. Wyatt says he wasn't talking about Hedy. So for a moment, Lucy thinks he's talking about her. But he denies that's what he meant. But he admits she's not hideous. He's a smooth one, that Wyatt. But she finds it funny rather than being offended. He says, come on, you know you're beautiful. She says she never thought of herself that way. She thinks of herself as more of a nerd. She missed her prom because she went to a speech and debate tournament instead. And she regrets nothing. I think there are both things going on with her. She does know she's beautiful and she is a nerd. You can see both going on in various scenes through the series. She says she bets he was popular in school with all the girls. He says actually he was caught drinking and barred from his prom. He was kind of lost back then. He tells her that she saved his life. He accepted these missions in the beginning because they were dangerous. After Jessica died he stopped caring. But not anymore. She says when she was with her mother and she thought he was dead, she felt the same way. They go back to their room and spend the night together. I think it had become a huge challenge for the show how to deal with the romance angle between these two. There is a very large part of the fan base who really want to see this and they get very angry if anything gets in the way of it. I've talked before about how I think their friendship is one of the best parts of the show. They always help each other to deal with whatever life throws at them. I don't object to the romance at all, but I will be disappointed if that special chemistry that they have is lost along the way. But I have faith in this writing team, and we'll see where it goes. Incidentally, there are some photos that came out on Twitter and elsewhere that show a version of this scene where they end up in the pool together, in the water. I gather they tried to film it that way, but there were technical difficulties and they couldn't use it. I think it might have been to do with the very high winds that I mentioned earlier, although there isn't really any sign of that in the scene where they're standing by the pool talking. But whatever the reason was, they ended up reworking the part where they kissed so that they could film it indoors. So they wake up together in the morning. Lucy is awake first. They're still happy together. They're thinking, as co-workers, there might be an HR issue. Wyatt is saying maybe they don't have to announce it to everyone. It could be their secret till they're ready. And then Rufus walks through the door. He's been trying to find them. His reaction is hilarious as he backs out the door again. So much for keeping it quiet. But they know Rufus will be cool about it. 
We cut to Gia again. The doctor has told her she's fine. She's had an MRI scan and there's absolutely nothing wrong with her. And the weirdest part, she says, is that she's had a heart murmur her whole life and that has vanished too. She's still having visions but her brain is fine and her heart is fixed. And she's wondering what happened to her on the lifeboat. Wyatt, Lucy and Rufus still need to recover the Citizen Kane reels, or more importantly, stop Rittenhouse getting their claws into William Randolph Hearst. So they're back at the Paramount RKO lot. While they're waiting for Lucas to show, Rufus and Wyatt talk. Rufus is totally in favour of Wyatt and Lucy getting together. He's been pretty consistent about that in his own quiet way. He says he won't tell anyone. Except Gia. Lucy comes back to them having found some different clothes to wear. Well, she couldn't exactly walk around in Catherine Hepburn's gown during the day. She says this is her favourite time period. I can't think of anything else she said in the show that would contradict that. We know she's not overly fond of the 50s. Calhoun appears, heading for stage 14. They follow... Unfortunately, they're seen by a security guard who follows them. Inside the building, Calhoun meets with someone to hand over the film reels. Hurst isn't there himself, he sent someone. The security guard comes into the building and is immediately shot by Calhoun. Hurst's man makes a run for it, without taking the film. White goes after Calhoun and the two start firing at each other. Rufus and Lucy try to help the guard, but then Rufus tries to get the film reels, which have been left unattended for a moment. Calhoun has a clear shot at Rufus, but Wyatt shoots him first. So Calhoun and the security guard have both been killed. There's nothing more they can do for the guard, so they make their escape with the film. Agent Christopher visits Flynn in the prison hospital. He says he can't see any release papers. She says it's not that simple. He's a convicted terrorist and he just killed someone. He says then you might as well kill me yourself. She says don't tempt me. She slips him a piece of paper. He says what's this? And she says if you ask me a very bad idea. Rufus gives the film to Hedy Lamar. She says, you're not really friends with Orson, are you? He says, no, but I am a huge fan of his work. She says, aren't we all? He says he's pretty sure the Navy aren't going to use her frequency hopping idea until 1962. So whatever she does, she shouldn't let that patent expire. He really shouldn't be trying to change history like this but I guess for Hedy Lamar we can make an exception. She kind of looks at him, not exactly puzzled, more interested in what he's just said to her, which seems exactly right to me. I like that a lot. Wyatt and Lucy are stealing a car. He says they have a long drive ahead, which is a bit mysterious at this point, but all will become clear. There's no radio in the car. He says maybe she could sing them a song. 
She says that was terrifying. He says she looked like she was having a good time. It was nice to see her happy. And certainly with everything that Lucy has been through, there hasn't been a great deal of opportunity for her to be happy. And it really was nice to see it. Rufus joins them in the car. He says he agrees with Agent Christopher. This is a terrible idea. They go to the site of the Oakland State Penitentiary, which is currently being built. Behind a brick they hide a package including a key and a gas mask. Back in the present, Flynn recovers the package using the instructions Agent Christopher gave him. Suddenly the prison fills with gas and his cell door opens. He puts on his mask and makes his way out. So Agent Christopher, Lucy and the others have engineered his escape from this prison. Something that a few episodes earlier would have been unthinkable. But with Rittenhouse making all kinds of changes in history now, everything has changed. The lifeboat arrives back at the bunker. Gia tells Rufus about seeing a doctor. Agent Christopher arrives. Lucy says they dropped off the package. Denise says she knows. And Flynn walks in to join them. Wyatt walks off, definitely not happy. Lucy goes after him. Wyatt admits that Flynn can help them, but will he? She says, can we forget about Flynn for a minute and talk about each other? And the other night? They agree it was pretty amazing. He makes a joke that they're already living together. She jokes that there's nowhere to go but down, and how right she is. Wyatt gets a text message. He says he'll be right back and walks away from her. She's puzzled, but Rufus calls out to her, distracting her. He tells Lucy that Hedy now earned $30 billion from her patent. Well done, Rufus. Well done, Hedy. Then an alarm goes off, and Agent Christopher says that someone is breaking in. Flynn asks where the guns are. He does like to have a gun. But Christopher has no intention of giving one to him, though. And when she gets to the entrance, she realises no one has broken in. Wyatt has broken out. And next we cut to a bar. Wyatt walks through the bar, looking for something or someone. There is someone there, looking away from him. He says her name, Jessica. She turns around to face him and he says, Oh my God, you're actually here. He hugs her, but he looks completely stunned. And while she lets him hug her, she doesn't seem very happy to see him. And that's the end of the episode. With the possible exception of that twist in the last scene, this episode gives Timeless fans everything they could ever want. Everyone is bringing their A-game here. It looks fantastic, it's funny, it's clever, it's romantic. It's fair to say the fans who ship the Lyat Fandango, the ones who really want this romance between Lucy and Wyatt, were not impressed with this ending. 
Here's Jessica to ruin everything. I have an open mind about it. I think it's way too early for Lucy and Wyatt to settle down and live happily ever after. And I think there are a lot of questions about Jessica that had to be answered someday. Is she a Rittenhouse agent? Is she just a lovely person? How is it that she's alive now anyway? The best way to answer these questions is to bring her on screen. This kind of reminds me of the ending of season one, where in many ways the story had gone where we expected it to, and then the writers pulled the rug out from under us. In that case with the reveal about Carol and Emma, and here with the introduction of Jessica. It complicates things for Wyatt and Lucy, for now, certainly. But I'm sure we're in for a hell of a ride. And that's all for this episode. Next time I'll look at what happens next when I'll be discussing Season 2, Episode 4, The Salem Witch Hunt. All the podcasts so far are available on the site, timelessfiles.podbean.com or in all the usual podcasting places, including iTunes, Stitcher and TuneIn. And you can find me on Twitter at, at @timelessfiles. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Brand of kisses that I die for, you know. You-